Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. How data is governed is changing as countries are enacting national data privacy laws, along with data localization regulations that dictate how governments want data to flow between countries and business entities that maintain and exchange this information. For the companies who must comply with these evolving regulations, it can be challenging to build the compliance tools that follow the new regulations without upending their fundamental business models, especially for global corporations that face a patchwork of national laws due to countries where they operate. As our guest today explains, there are more barriers to cross-border data flows now than ever before, and these barriers are impeding digital trade by imposing high costs on corporations and data transfer companies that need to meet their local regulatory obligations. What does the current regulatory landscape for data governance look like, and where, if at all, can regulators, trade experts, and multinational companies find common ground? Today's guest is Nigel Corey. Nigel is an Associate Director at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, known as ITIF. His work focuses on trade policy and the implications of digital economies' growth for international trade and innovation. Nigel's latest piece examines how barriers to cross-border data flows are spreading globally and what they cost and how to address them. Prior to sharing his expertise with ITIF, Nigel was a Southeast Asia policy researcher at CSIS, and he worked at Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade for six years. Nigel joins the podcast to discuss the concept of data localization and how the existence of several different privacy regimes, both within the U.S. and across the globe, continue to be a challenge as the regulatory environment around data collection and dissemination continue to change. Nigel and I also discuss China's new data privacy law and a recap on how Europe's privacy saga around TREMS 1 and 2 have upended transatlantic data flows and complicated U.S.-European relations around data transfer policies. Nigel, welcome to Explain to Shane. To get started, could you give us an overview of the research on data flows, digital trade, and data governance that you've been working on over at ITIF? Great. More than happy to, Shane. Really appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast. What I'm focusing on at the moment is on the sort of emerging set of policies that countries are enacting to either support or restrict and control the use and movement of data, especially cross-border data flows. In that I mean, like here in the United States, as well as in Europe, but pretty much in every country around the world, policymakers are trying to figure out how do they adapt their legal systems to sort of our data-driven sort of world these days. But I suppose a central point of that is that many countries, uh, some democratic, but many authoritarian, associate the location of data storage with data privacy and data protection and with digital development. And they do this for both commercial and national security reasons, which as a supporter of sort of data-driven innovation and digital trade, we think is sort of wrong and misguided for a number of reasons. And as we're seeing sort of more and more countries enact these restrictions on the movement of data, we're obviously sort of being forced to confront questions about, well, what type of global internet do we want to see? Do we want to see an open, rules-based and innovative one, or do we want to see Or are we heading towards a sort of fragmented, sort of less innovative, less competitive global digital economy where there's the sort of the splinter net where each country has their sort of like tech national champions and they, but they largely sort of exist behind these sort of protective regulatory barriers. 
But what this means most generally for us that sort of work on internet policy is that it gets, it sort of targets a central point of the underlying technical architecture of the internet, which is the free, free movement of data, which will happen unless governments enact artificial restrictions. And unfortunately, this is what we're seeing. In my last report uh, put out last month on data localization around the world, which is when countries force firms to store data locally. We've seen that since I last looked at this in 2017, where there were 35 countries that enacted 67 such barriers, there's now 62 countries who have enacted 144 restrictions, and there's dozens more under consideration. And it's not just the overall sort of number of localization measures we've seen, but the fact that these restrictions are targeting a growing range of data types from the mapping data used for self-driving cars and e-commerce services to the personal health and genomic data that's sort of driving sort of life science innovation to measures targeting financial payment and insurance sort of data, which sort of is another critical component to our digital economy and many other types of data. And so together, what this means is that it's increasingly difficult for firms to sort of operate across borders and to collect and use data from markets and consumers and customers around the world. And so that's making their job sort of increasingly complicated and costly in terms of being able to engage in sort of global digital economic activity. Yeah, I remember the first time I heard about data localization, which was probably about 15 years ago, and Brazil was really big on it. And I thought, did a server company get to them? Uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, why? And then, because it was just didn't seem to, what they were saying, what they were trying to do seemed to be two different things. And, and you just outlined a whole bunch of issues that come up when you start to break things into component parts. And part of that is we, a lot of, you know, we exist in a multinational universe for a lot of this information flow. So Data localization definitely brings challenges to the table. And I know that you just recently did a piece or in the last couple of months on barriers to cross-border data flow and how they're spreading globally. So can you give us some examples? Yeah. So I think you touch on a, a good point there. I suppose the motivations for using data localization have evolved from sort of being focused on data centers and 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 that being sort of the, the focal point for this policy. But it's evolved since then to a much broader set of motivations around concepts of control for cyber sovereignty or digital sovereignty to being much more closely associated with digital protectionism in terms of like using restricting the control and use of data for for protectionism. So the clearest, easiest examples are those in China, which is a world leader in using data localization and restricting data. And data localization is one of many tools it's used to essentially sort of wall itself off from the global internet and to protect its global tech giants like Alibaba and Tencent from the likes of Amazon and and Microsoft and others, which allows them sort of to grow behind these protective barriers and then obviously expand globally once they reach a certain point of sort of competitiveness. But I think one of the the clearest examples I use with policymakers about how this is sort of short-sighted is that the value of data comes from how it's used, not where it's stored. And a clear example of this is in terms of like health and genomics data. And some of the incredible innovations we're seeing in this space depends upon running clinical trials and user data from around the world. And if they're unable to transfer genomic and health and personal data as a part of that, it means they can't sort of use data to sort of accelerate sort of drug discovery. 
And this is what's definitely at stake in the the sort of the, the breakdown and digital sort of connectivity between the EU and US. But it's already sort of broken down between China, which strictly controls their collection and use of genomic and health data and doesn't allow foreign firms to access and use it. And so there's already this clear divide in China, given its use of data localization between its internet, it's essentially sort of cut itself off from the rest of the world and the global internet that that the rest of us sort of exist in. That is a specific data set I think a lot of people would like to have access to right now. Yes, yes. Go into the Delta variant. We're like, could we just understand how this whole thing started? I'm referring to COVID. So you bring up an interesting point because I often talk about data bloat and that, you know, part of the problem we have with cybersecurity is that people just keep things because it's relatively inexpensive, depending on the size of the company, to do that. And we just recently have the T-Mobile hack. So, you know, that's just a perfect example of like, you know, you didn't even have to be a Timo customer. You could have just applied to be a Timo customer and they kept your data yep. because you were you know, going for a credit report. And so that's pretty large. And then there was a piece out this morning saying the guy that they caught, he said it was so easy to break in. It was kind of hard not to. So the idea of keeping too much or keeping data, I guess it's relative as to what is too much on hand can become a real cost for companies. But the other point you you bring up is that, you know, depending on the sensitivity of the information, it ages out too. Like it yeah. just doesn't, it becomes not relevant to what you're doing, especially in the academic area. So that, that's a really interesting. Yeah. And, it, and it goes to, I mean, there's obviously huge potential economic value in collecting and using data and, and much of the value of data comes from its aggregation, hence our focus on big data. But obviously with that collection and aggregation comes sort of equal legal responsibilities. Like you've got to sort of put in as much time and effort into protecting and securing it as you do into developing sort of the AI that you feed into it. And as it relates to the data localization part of it, it also goes to the point like the location of that data is redundant. Like I think in that story, the guy is based in Turkey and he just used publicly available tools to sort of like find a weak point. And and so what that shows is like it's about the the measures that companies use to secure data rather than where they store it. And that's that's a legitimate sort of focus point for, for T, like in the T-Mobile case is like, well, what are companies doing to ensure that there aren't these type of breaches? Going back to your point about data localization and in the idea of like information flow that is or is not coming across, depending on where you're located, is there any chance as you look at it as a trade issue on industry sector approach, which I'm a fan of the United States. I, I think we've done it well for a long time, but we've just done it differently than the way other governments have looked at it. And unfortunately, the concept doesn't seem to port because nobody wants to follow what we're doing. But <laughs> we had like, you know, medical information yep. was considered a more superior area where you needed to really lock it down, even though ransomware is kind of questioning that. But, you know, banks, banks knew a long time ago people weren't going to trust mobile banking unless they really felt like they could get on their device and, and people weren't going to have access to it. And I guess I'm probably going to a cybersecurity point again. But the idea of, you know, going in a, in a trade mechanism, like, you know, can we parse this into, let's say, the mapping data? You know, yeah. and, and there's, there's also national security issues around that. But yeah. now that I've asked eight questions at once, can you pick one and answer it? Yeah, no. So what you get at is the fact that the sort of trade rules we have under the World Trade Organization are relics of the 19th century and just not ready for today's digital 21st century. And they just haven't kept up. 
And meanwhile, domestic regulations have emerged and some of them are sort of conflicting and restrictive and some of them are sort of more open and based on sort of legal principles of like accountability for wherever the data is stored. But you raise a really good point that I've actually, it's an idea I've advocated to policymakers is on sort of sectoral specific agreements, because what we've seen is sectoral regulators enact rules and regulations around data in their area, but quite often it's been more on how do they restrict and control it rather than how do they ensure that sort of domestic legal responsibilities move with the data wherever it goes. And that's definitely been the case in, in financial data and in, in health data, as you mentioned. But where we're now faced is like, well, how do you ensure that there are sort of sectoral bridges between countries and regions? And it's actually an idea that I've been recommending to policymakers for sort of sectoral agreements on health and genomic data. Because while health and genomic data are amongst the most sensitive types of data, they also hold some of the greatest potential societal benefits by being able to aggregate these data sets to help drive drug discoveries and new sort of health treatments. And the evidence of sort of the, the value of this type of cooperation is that it's been constantly cited by private sector and academic researchers that the European Union's general data protection regulation is already cutting off and undermining transatlantic health research in that there's some sort of 20-odd percent of US FDA-registered drug trials that have clinical trials in both Europe and the United States. So if those companies engaged in this aren't able to transfer data, then those drug clinical trials are undermined, and we're all worse off for that. And so it would be far better if the two sides could get together to enact sort of common principles and processes to ensure that firms manage data reasonably, responsibly, and ethically, but in a way that obviously doesn't undermine their ability to use it for sort of broader societal and economic benefits. Nigel, question then is, so if you were to take that same data and put it on a hard drive and put somebody on an airplane and fly them across, would the data be shareable then? Is it the fact that it's using the digital medium the problem? Or is it that the information is being shared? I mean, are the localization laws noting the difference between digital and just like a, a physical asset? No, it's, it's, it's more in terms of just its general use and how it's being used in a specific jurisdiction. An example of that, right, is like GDPR is restricting the transfer of EU personal data that may be used for health research. But that doesn't obviously prevent companies from like importing US health data to do that research in Europe because the United States allows that. So it's just more about who's using it and where they're using it. That's at the crux of so many sort of issues that sort of Europe's approach to privacy is creating. So let's go, let's travel over to Europe because they seem to be the one that is, there is becoming a de facto privacy law. And just everyone who knows me knows I don't believe in, I think that privacy is a feeling. I think it's a hard thing to legislate on. So I prefer to call it data, but they call it privacy. And we're all at least the multinationals, which means it trickles down to a lot of things that are going on. Of course, we have California and now Colorado is coming into play on privacy laws is, you know, they are becoming what everybody is looking at on the, you know, like, how do I manage this, especially from a multinational legal team perspective on, you know, what rules do they have to deal with? And one of the things that comes into question there is sometimes it isn't just a straight, I'm going from my server in Luxembourg to my server in New York. There's a third, a lot of third-party aggregation. So 
there's a lot of entities that are going along in that space. So can I keep break down for us what's going on in Europe and, and what we need to be looking at? And we'll, we'll get to Shrems here in a second, but give us the baseline. Yeah, basically, I mean, Europe has sought to seize what it sees as sort of the first mover advantage in setting what it thinks the sort of the, the global benchmark for data privacy should be. But it's done so in such a way that has created enormous problems in that it's very restrictive. It's based on largely based on geography. It's supposed to be sort of a single law for the entire European Union. But what we've seen is that it's actually sort of fragmented in a way and how it empowers individual data protection authorities in EU member states to interpret GDPR as they see fit. And the further we've GDPR has moved into implementation and enforcement, we've seen these issues and errors sort of pop up. And that's making life very hard for foreign firms that rely on sort of global IT systems to manage data in that they obviously don't want to set up sort of IT administrative, legal and compliance sort of operations in each and every market, including in Europe. And so that's sort of where we're at in that it's it's pushed ahead with it put this very broad and restrictive rules in place on privacy, but it's only really coming to life more recently. And that's what's sort of like obviously led us to Shrems. Well, just most recently, it was about a couple of weeks ago, Amazon was buying 746 million euros after the Luxembourg e-commerce regulator determined Amazon's collection of customers' personal information violated GDPR. I'm just imagining the Amazon people like, we thought we had this. We were in Brussels. Yeah, the, the Luxembourg case is both interesting and absurd in that it's the first time that a data protection authority has interpreted a particular part of GDPR, in this, in this case being Article 5, about what constitutes lawful processing. And it was a case based on a submission by a French privacy rights group. And, and it's actually fascinating for a number of reasons, but one of them is that it actually goes to the heart of, of basically targeted advertising in that the activists argue that Amazon shouldn't be allowed to use data to build behavioural profiles to offer targeted advertising. It should simply be a service to buy and sell goods. There was no data breach. There was no sort of customer data sort of lost out there. It was simply about how they use data. And then in consequence, they were fined the largest fine under GDPRs thus far at 746 million euros, like the previous highest fine was 50 million. And so, understandably, Amazon's appealing the case because it obviously sets a pretty worrying precedent about that could affect a, a core part of their operations, but obviously sends a clear signal to other firms about what they may face as, as other sort of legal challenges make their way through the pipeline. When I read that, I was kind of wondering if somebody in Luxembourg had an old school side rule and they're like, what's your market cap? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's part of the challenge, right? Like the potential to find 4% of global revenue. And so bringing it back to to my favorite issue of data localization is that the potential for massive fines drives localization because the uncertainty of the the law and whether they can transfer and use data in a certain way is so high that they have no choice but to store data locally. That isn't the case here of the Luxembourg thing, given it's about use of data, but more broadly, that's, I know, a major fear for US firms operating in Europe. And that's what's driving them to shift more and more data and services within the region. I want to get to Shrems too, but to, for the audience, just in case they weren't paying attention, can you start us off with Shrems 1? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So 
Max Schrems is an Austrian data privacy advocate who has filed successive cases at Europe's highest court about GDPR, specifically as it relates to data going to the United States, given concerns about US surveillance activities. And in response to these cases, the United States and Europe have enacted these legal frameworks for companies to use to transfer personal data across the Atlantic. And so what we had last year was Max Schrems' second case in which he was successful in the court agreeing with him about the nature of sort of US surveillance activities, which they then used to invalidate the EU-US privacy shield, which was the latest legal framework that the two sides had enacted to allow data transfers. And so what that has meant is that US firms are facing sort of an increasingly sort of difficult environment to navigate if they aren't able to transfer EU personal data to the United States, because Europe has very few other legal tools for them to use, and they're incredibly or increasingly restrictive in terms of how they can use it and which countries they can use it to transfer data to. And so the SREMS case has had huge repercussions for the EU-US transatlantic relationship, but more importantly, it has geopolitical ramifications because if the European Union and the United States can't agree and work together on sort of data transfers between the two, what chance do they have on working together to enact other rules and norms around data and, and global digital trade, given sort of China and Russia and others are presenting a very different sort of model of operations. So a quick example, I always think it's like Marriott, right? You know, so you, you're a Marriott loyalty person. And when you stay someplace in Europe, you want the mothership, which happens to be here, in, I think, with us, know that you stayed there so you get your points because your points are really important. And so, you know, there's there's like how many hoops do you have to get through for Marriott, their own information transferring from A to B, right? You know, and it's like, it's interesting because it's just stuff that I think people don't think about. It isn't about maps. It isn't about some of the other yes. things that get more complicated, very basic. It's just even a loyalty program. Now, Schrems was is specifically about Facebook, right? Yes. Yeah. And that's the, the, I suppose, the focal point for his concerns. But Obviously, as you pointed out there, like personal data is embedded in, in so many things we don't even, the, the common consumer doesn't even realize. But to basically test his, his case, he chose Facebook. And obviously, they collect and use a huge amount of personal data. And it's sort of central to their business model in terms of being a global sort of social network. So it's pretty hard for them to connect friends if those friends aren't able to sort of identify themselves across jurisdictions. Yeah. I mean, well, and I was, it's, it's not like you don't have to be on Facebook. It's like you don't have to be a Marriott loyalty customer. No. <laughs> so, you know, I guess there's just a lot that goes on in the contracting process there, but he certainly challenged that and brought down the, a lot of work that was done with the EU and the Department of Commerce here in the United States. So they had to put that whole plan that they'd worked very hard on on hold. And then they came up with, see, we had a bridge first and then yes. we had a shield. Okay. So the bridge came down. Now the shield is down for people's privacy. And then we thought we thought we were in a better place. And then what's Shrems 2? So Shrems 2 is was relitigating his initial point about European citizens not having sufficient safeguards and ability to access remedies in the United States about how the National Security Agency potentially collects and use their data. And so 
that central point is what's at the heart of negotiations between the United States and Europe as they again try and sort of like rebuild or, or lay a new foundation for whatever sort of analogy they use, if it's not a bridge, if it's not a shield, I'm not quite sure what comes next in terms of trying to satisfy that central concern so that in the inevitable scenario that whatever they come up with is challenged can survive. And so that's the point that's underpin both of these cases that has had EU-US digital relations in such flux for a decade now. But it's a matter of, of seeing whether the two sides can finally put something in place that survives the inevitable legal challenges it'll face in Europe. And that's, that's still an open question. Like President Biden was in Brussels to make the case for a new deal in June. Negotiators have been hard at it trying to figure out what way they can go about doing this without necessarily requiring legislative changes here in the United States and whether that would be enough to sort of satisfy European policymakers and inevitably European courts. But it's, it's unknown what they'll eventually come up with and, and what it will specifically look like. But it's, it's probably the Biden administration's number one sort of global digital policy at the moment. And so it's a question mark out there at the moment. Yeah, the fines certainly made GDPR real. Yes. And then, you know, for those who've been in this space for a long time, we were following the APEC privacy. <laughs> we were trying to do something with Asia for years. And I've, know, I've known multiple people who've retired trying to you know, work through that. And then we had China pop up last week and said, oh, we got new rules. So is, how's that going to affect things? Yeah. So it sort of goes to the point that like, while Europe sort of was first out of the gate in, in defining data privacy, it's up to each and every country to go about it themselves. And so China has a very different approach. It's obviously copied and pasted some parts of GDPR, but then obviously enacted other measures which are very unique to China. And so Together, that sort of broadly comes together as, as part of what you could call sort of a China model in contrast to the Euro- European model and the EU model. But what I suppose the eternal promise <laughs> and challenge of creating a model supported by the United States is ongoing. Apex cross-border privacy regime is a system that, that I, I really think is a good one. It's something that the United States already supports and a bunch of other countries have jumped on board. I think it hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but I think it deserves more in that the United States is working with like-minded partners in the region to take CBPR, so this data privacy system, out of APEC so that more countries can join it. And thus it goes from being a regional framework to a global framework and obviously stands a better chance of drawing attention and participation as opposed to Europe's sort of precautionary-based data privacy model and China's model of digital control. So how challenging is it to be a person who's looking at this globally and especially on the trade front, and we actually don't have a national understanding of how we're going to deal with data or we use the word privacy because in the nature of what we do with you know our federalist system. But I think we're kind of at a point where we are at a major disadvantage, just my personal opinion, of not having a national again, using the word privacy, privacy law, national data protection law, as we go into this, how, how challenging is that from a trade perspective? Because it's definitely challenge, starting to challenge a lot of companies as they're having to deal with the checkerboard of different data protection laws. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. The United States is at a clear disadvantage in the global debate without the lack of a 
single comprehensive federal data privacy protection framework because the US approach does not lend itself to replication in other countries. It's sexual, it's risk-based, whereas what we've seen with Europe's GDPR is that it's relatively straightforward for countries to sort of copy and paste various elements of it to address issues that they, they think are important. And so that means it's had a broad impact around the world. And obviously, sort of like a single law sends a signal that this is important to the United States. And it also provides sort of a basis of comparison and contrast with other countries that they can then sort of emulate. And so the United States, by doing so, has an opportunity to sort of set the balance about sort of data privacy, data protection, and data-driven innovation in its own way to stand in contrast to, the, to where the balance, the line has been drawn in Europe and in China. And from a trade perspective, that's a massive thing. And it's actually been a central issue for me as I engage in this issue around the world is that countries are looking for guidance. They're looking for best practices. They're looking for models to replicate as it relates to dealing with the digital economy. And in many regards, they can't look to the United States. And so that means they inevitably have to look to Europe or to China or elsewhere. And so that makes the case for the United States to advocate for a model that supports the, the, the use of data for data-driven innovation, digital trade, that much harder. Yeah, no, totally get that. You've certainly given us a lot to think about. So leave us with, what are you working on right now? What do we have to look forward to? Yeah, so ongoing work about the various ways that countries manage data, both individually, but then globally. And how countries go about enacting sort of new rules and frameworks to work together to support data-driven innovation in digital trade. There's some really interesting stuff taking place in the Asia-Pacific with Singapore and Australia, New Zealand and Chile through digital economy agreements, which I think present a model for the United States and others to follow in that it includes much needed sort of new digital trade rules that prohibit data localization and other rules that undermine digital trade, but also importantly, have an element of cooperation built into it on AI, e-identity, digital payments, and other sort of trade, digital trade-related issues where regulators come together to talk early on in the process to figure out how do they address these issues without inadvertently enacting barriers to trade. And I think that's an important part of this process that thus far the United States is completely absent from and it sort of presents a model for others to, to replicate in the future. So digging into that as well as a host of other sort of digital trade sort of proposals in Africa and Latin America and elsewhere around the world. I look forward to reading and listening to all that. Thank you for doing all that hard work. Well, Nigel, thank you for being a guest today on Explain to Shane. No worries. Thanks for having me, Shane. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.